In January 2009, the NHL All-Star Game in Montreal opened with a pre-game music and acrobatics concert by popular circus arch group Cirque Eloise. On that night, 100 feet in the air, in a harness, surrounded by 25,000 screaming hockey fans, and another 2 million or so watching via TV from around the world, tonight's guests first burst into the musical consciousness of many who posited the question, who the hell is that musical acrobat, that aerial violinist at the center of it all? She's amazing. Indeed she was, and indeed she still is. For while that opening aerobatic performance was perhaps the first time many had heard of and seen violinist composer Natalie Bonnet, she hadn't just magically appeared on the scene out of nowhere. Uh-uh. Already a 30-year master of the craft, that night the rest of the world was merely granted the opportunity to catch up. Over the years, she'd become part of a new wave of classical instrumentalists who, by combining that virtuoso classicism with jazz, rock, hip-hop, DJ breakbeats, and more, would help usher out the door, the cliched image of the stone-faced violinist, and replace it with that of the hip, sexy, and yes, fun, artistic master who enjoyed their craft and wasn't just a slave to it. This new image would encourage an entire new generation to expand their musical horizon. And during this time, Miss Bonnet would personally expand her own as well. As guest soloist with Wynton Marsalis and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, performing and recording with legends such as Stevie Wonder, Charles Aznavour, Luciano Pavarotti, and film composers such as Christopher Young, she the featured soloist in special concert and recorded versions of his acclaimed Drag Me to Hell, Concerto to Hell suite. In TV and film, she was concertmaster of Lavoie, Canada's version of The Voice, and oh, I got the pronunciation right there that time, more on that later. She scored numerous series, such as the international hit Hip Gags with Mesmer, commercials such as that for Celine Dion's Un Selfois, and filmic shorts such as the nifty thriller Who Lives Here, for which she took home an award from 2014's 24-hour film race. A member of the Grammys and Television's Emmy Academy, Miss Bonnet recently ended the endless cycle of rotating between Canada, New York, and Los Angeles to put down roots in the City of Angels, where she's throwing a considerable amount of her considerable talents into film composition, which kind of brings things here. After all, we are the movie sneak. As part of our Can You Dig It series, where we like to give a heads up about artists we're fairly certain will be dominating the scene in a few short years, we're thrilled to bring you this sit-down with Natalie Bonnet. Laid back, pretty damn funny, informative, and inspirational as hell, you'll find it a fascinating look behind the curtain, which sheds light on the soul behind the music. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, and welcome to the movie sneak. String Theory. Passion times soul equals magic. A chat with violinist composer Natalie Bonnet.
before we bring on Miss Bonna, first up, for those perhaps unfamiliar with her work, a composition of hers near and dear to her heart, Destiny Calling.
That was Destiny Calling, written and performed by tonight's guest, uh, Natalie Bona, and in that piece featuring renowned percussionist M.B. Gordy. And if you've ever listened to Zappa, the Doobie Brothers, or paid attention to film scores like Transformers, Red Dragon, and 310 to Yuma, then you know that distinctive sound and uh, an awesome combination between your sensibilities dovetailing with his. Thank you. So, Natalie, welcome to the Movie Sneak. Wow, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Cool, cool. It's a great pleasure and a great honor. And that's the kind of stuff you normally say at the beginning of an interview. And it's true. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is he going to say now? Famous last words, right? But no, I also was kind of looking forward to this chat as something that would just be fun, too. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, people say a lot of negative stuff about social media. And a lot of it's true. A lot of it's deserved. No argument there. Uh, but one of the great things is the ability to not only become familiar with a wealth of someone's work, you know, their art and their craft, mm-hmm. but to become somewhat familiar with them as a person behind that work. And the both together aren't always great. True. Uh, you can have a good one and not the other. True. <laughs> but I think there are rare occasions when you, well, in this case, you hear someone's work and then maybe you get to know them at least a little and you kind of sit back and you think of the soul and the tone and the spirit, the voice, if you will, of that work, uh, in this case, the music, and just kind of sit back and grin and say, yeah, that makes sense. I see that coming from that person. Mm-hmm. And when I hear and see your work, some of it is concert master of the show Lavoie, it was Canada's version of The Voice, or your performances as an aerial violinist, and we'll get to that, or the NHL All-Star Game as an award-winning composer at the LA Live Score Film Festival, where, for those who are unaware, uh, the score is, as the title would suggest, performed live before an audience accompanying the independent film for which it was written, Yes, and so many other things you've been involved in. I mean, I hear all of that, and I see all of that, and it's this wonderful combination of the traditional and the modern, uh, the kind of thing that composer Elliot Goldenthal once referred to as a fusion of what some people might call the profound and the profane. Right. So, so there's all of that. And uh, like I said, I hear your music, which is classy and polished and professional and technically proficient, but also possessed of, at times, this childlike sense of glee and wonder and even mischievousness. <laughs> So there's that's where that yeah that makes sense aspect comes in because the more I've gotten to know you I kind of see as yeah that I, I can see that coming from this person yeah and that's okay, a wonderful cool. combo and that's kind of why why this was originally supposed to start out as a small mini interview within a larger podcast episode just kind of decided along the way nah we just got to go do a whole show so with all all, all that said like I said before. Welcome to the movie sneak, okay? Uh, thank you. That's wow. What an intro. You have a tendency, or you have so far usurped or upended certain expectations. Uh, I had mentioned earlier before we started recording how when I first you know, I realized you're from Canada, and yeah, people from Canada are nice. <laughs> uh, so they say I've never met any you know rude people from Canada. And I knew that you spoke French, and I've even seen a few interviews in French. And for some reason, I just kind of assumed that you would have this French accent. And, and like I said uh, earlier, and then I heard your voice on another show, and it's like, oh, hell, you sound like you're from Delaware or Maryland or Hohokus, New Jersey or something. That's what I, which I thought was kind of cool. Well. And so, just to let people know that this isn't a put on, right? Maybe I can, maybe I can speak in, in French and, uh, you know, bonjour. Oh, okay. I guess that, that, that's not too hard for people to understand what that means. Okay. Très heureuse d'être ici. There we go. Okay, oh. see? I didn't make this up. All right? <laughs> no, All right. Okay. But kind of one of the things I'm hoping 
uh, is that uh, in general is for people to become aware of uh, folks that I believe they certainly will be aware of within just a few years. And I'm kind of hoping that by the time we get to the end of this, that there might be some young people out there who, uh, regardless of where they come from, will just say, oh, shit, man, she's cool, and her music's pretty badass. I think I'd like to do something like that in the future. Hmm. I hope so, so too, um, actually. Cool. So, uh, to the audience, the way we're going to break this up, since there's so much to go into, and so we don't sound like we're just... um, you know, uh, sporadically pulling stuff out of thin air. We're going to break things up into three categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, your background, your past work, like in Canada and New York, whatsoever, uh, you know, and, 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 and such. And uh, the third and final category, the uh, career, present, and future. That's all one topic. But to begin with, uh, we're going to kind of, and you ever watch Inside the Actor Studio? <laughs> no, okay. but I, I, no? I should. <laughs> Okay. Now, are you familiar, and it's kind of become a cliche, they've even spoofed it on shows like Saturday Night Live, where the host, James Lipton, he has a set of cards, and at the the end of the show, he asks questions. Um, So, I'm going to do a twist on that. Okay. But rather than wait till the end of the show and have like, you know, six or so questions, every time we go into a new category, I'm going to ask two questions to begin Uh that category. Now, the two questions, I mean, some of them might be serious. Some of them just might okay. be funny or okay. goofy or just off the wall. And they may not even necessarily have anything to do with the topic we're about to go into. But I kind of think of those questions as almost like um, like a shot of whiskey or a drink. I was actually thinking to myself, should I get myself a glass of wine before this? <laughs> hey, if you want to, you know, I can just hit the pause button. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> but uh, so these questions will kind of be like that in that I think some of them will be so off the wall that in trying to come up with an answer and thinking about it, it'll kind of take you out of yourself. I I find that people have a tendency to be a little less self-conscious if you're, think- if you're thinking, what the hell? <laughs> and uh, just kind of uh, relax a little bit because I'm not necessarily into the whole normal ABC, simple Q&A questions kind of thing. All right. You know, starting with, so where were you born? So, the first question would be, what is your most embarrassing professional moment? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, professional, like, I don't know if you'd consider that professional, but I think it's part of my professional career. I, I actually was taking um, lessons from this um, Gary Dial, a proficient um, professor at Manhattan School, and he was teaching me um, improvisation and piano lessons in New York. And so every other week, I would take the bus, usually a night bus, and end up there, take my lesson and go back with the next night bus. And one time I I was also playing violin on those because, you know, improvisation. And um, I ended up there and opened my case and realized I did not have my violin. So I basically <laughs> did the whole way to New York, did the whole trip without my instrument. <laughs> so that was pretty embarrassing. I guess that was one of the most embarrassing moments. Okay. Uh well, what did you do when you got there? Just borrowed an instrument, or oh um, no, because it was just for a lesson. So he ended up oh, oh, okay. me I got you. on the piano. But you know, the whole point was to have my violin and and explore different you know solos and genres on my violin. And I just felt so foolish to have actually gotcha. gone there without my instrument. Um, yeah, hmm. you know, you can't leave home without it. <laughs> exactly. 
Okay. Now, the second question would be, um, I guess it concerns what I've always called mental and emotional snapshots, kind of how, um, I guess, long before we had cell phones that we could take everywhere. Um, you know, I know myself, I've got at least one, two, or three moments that are just etched in my subconscious forever uh, that I just remember vividly what things look like, what they smelled like, how I felt mm-hmm. at the time. And it may have nothing to do at all with music or whatever. But uh, so uh, what do you think would be your most vivid, vividly remembered emotional snapshot, professional or personal? There are a couple, but uh, the one that comes to mind is related to my childhood. We used to live in the country and uh, well, partly in the country and I would spend my summers there and and I remember those vivid, colorful dreams that I would have every night. Um, and I would be flying over the mountains and those forests, and I could control that flight. And it was very special. Um, later in life, I read about this. And while some say that it was some sort of astral voyage, I, you know, there's no <laughs> proof of it. But I just remember the feeling mm-hmm. that I had during those dreams. It, w- it was one of the most amazing happy deep fulfilling uh sensation that i could ever have um and i was always happy to go back to sleep to actually try and reconnect with those dreams and funnily enough i was actually watching a lot of those disney movies at the time Mm -hmm. you know there a lot of them had to do with uh, spirituality forest animals and i think somehow i connected with that and the fact that i was living in the country uh kind of made me sensitive Mm -hmm. to that um so that was, you know, one of those moments I remember. On a more professional level, I, I would say when um, I had such an amazing chance um, to perform with the Jazz at Lincoln Center in New York, and I remember turning, I was on stage for the dress rehearsal, and I turned around and I watched all these amazing hmm. musicians, and um, Ted Nash, who had composed the piece, who was playing next to me, and and in the back, watching Winston Marsalis there playing hmm. trumpet, and you know, in my band, literally, I it was like a pinch pinch myself moment. Like, am I really living this, or is this a dream? Um, so this is really vivid in my memory. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Okay. Well, now uh, I guess diving into the uh, I guess meat and potatoes aspect, uh, the background, the old standby. So where were you born? Well, I was born in San Francisco. Uh-huh. And how did you eventually get to Canada? And as far as your entree into music, um, was it, I mean, some people have a eureka moment. Some people, it's more like, I can't really pinpoint one moment. I just kind of saw myself moving towards it my whole life. Uh, right. Um, well, it, first of all, I was born from French Canadians. My parents um, were actually from Montreal. And... My father was doing a psychology degree in, in um, California and Berkeley. So I was born during that time. And mm-hmm. they came back to Canada when I was one and a half. Uh, I did retain my citizenship. <laughs> they were not legal afterwards, but I was. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, when I was four, my mom brought me to this concert. Uh, she had heard about this school of kids learning violin and um i went to their final concert i was four years old and it was just i remember that moment too i mean that's one of those other vivid moments where i remember seeing all these kids and wanting to be part of that group just sharing 
the same uh, experience. And so I told my mom, I loved it. I'm just so sad that I could not be part of it. So she brought me back uh, backstage and I met the teacher and I just started the next session in the fall. Um, at that time, I had already taken some gymnastic classes for about six months. And um, to be honest, that was really my dream from the beginning with gymnastics. Yeah. Hmm. But I kept doing both all my childhood. Nice. And uh, and that's kind of, um, I guess, what I meant without realizing it uh, earlier with the, um, <clears throat> I guess, with the question like, um, um, most vivid uh, emotional memory because I think even from the piece of music that uh, the audience heard earlier, Destiny Calling, which is very visual, um, I think that kind of puts that piece of music into perspective from what you were just saying about the uh, the very vivid dreams about right. flying. You know, mm-hmm. because I definitely you get a sense of movement and almost flying from a lot of your music. It's very very visual, very emotional. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, I never thought of that, but but it is true. And in Destiny Calling. There is a lot of those aspects mm-hmm. kind of intertwined. I, I just feel like it's very full of of what life is, you know, how mm-hmm. you are drawn to your destiny, but then mm-hmm. it takes you in many different directions uh, and it can feel like a pull and then a push and then a war and then a resolution. And, and um, yeah, I guess that's <laughs> complex, mm. I, like life. Okay. And I realize that sometimes it's, it may be hard to pinpoint, but a lot of people, when they're younger, have uh, certain dreams, you know, or certain pulls, you know, where there's the old saying, many are called, but few are chosen. Yes. So how did you go from a child who thought and felt, yeah, I think I want to do that, to someone who actually did? I guess early training, early... Um, well, yeah, it was a uh, discipline, but, you know, I, I started by playing maybe 15 minutes a day. Um, at four, that's about what you can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then it gradually became more serious, but there were more group classes at the beginning. I started taking private lessons when I was nine. But the funny thing is is that I sort of continued music um kind of uh, as my second choice because I was refused in the gymnastics club when I was nine. That was my dream. I wanted Mm -hmm. to be like Nadia Kamanechi, who had just been at the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And um, she was my first idol. I wanted to be like her. And I took gymnastics very seriously. And my coach had referred me to, at the time, it was the only... um, kind of provincial gymnastics club that could lead to a higher and, you know, eventually maybe Olympics. Um, but they refused me just based on my stat sheet of height and weight. And, you know, uh, I didn't fit what they wanted hmm. at the time, which were extremely tiny girls. Um, so at nine, I was so sad. I mean, sometimes I think I might have had a tiny depression just because hmm. that was really my dream that was mm-hmm. shattered. Um, and so I remember I, I stopped even music for the whole summer. Um, I think I even broke my arm. I mean, it all wow. happened in the same summer. And then after all that, I sort of came back to music by myself. It called me back. And I thank my parents because they were great about it. They just let me come back to it by myself. They never forced anything like, well, are you going to take it back again or not? Or what are we doing with the instrument? You know, they just let me go with it. And music called me back. And then it became more serious. It became more 
of a personal choice. And um, then I started private lessons. And well, eventually we we moved to New York. So that's a whole other, um, I would say, page in history. <laughs> but um, nine was a very important year for me because that's my first real choice to play the violin seriously. So going into the second section, um, career career past, uh, we're going to open with another question. This one a little normal. Now, there's a running gag in the movie Escape from New York uh, with Kurt Russell, where almost everyone who meets his character, Snake Plissken, says, I always thought you'd be taller. And they kind of do that throughout the whole movie. Now, is there something you've heard more than once from people who, when they meet you in person for the first time, they say, oh, wow, I thought. Oh, my gosh. Um... I don't know. Uh, I guess. Um, I guess some might have thought I was taller. Yeah. Huh, okay. um, but not nothing particular. I, you know, maybe that happened a couple of times. They. I, no, I can't really think of something that's really specific. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to. You know, if there's no answer there, okay, fine. Uh, okay. <laughs> Maybe this one will... Uh, okay, second question. Uh, and this one actually is a, an actual question from the actor Studio. What's your favorite curse word? <laughs> uh, probably shit. <laughs> okay. And uh, this is not a question from the actor Studio. Why? <laughs> I don't know, because it's it has kind of a... Like, it's not totally impolite, but it's a little twisted. But you're not, okay. you know... Not really mm-hmm. offending anybody, but it, and it just comes out nice. You know, there's like a nice shit. You know? Right, right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. Hey, excellent. Awesome. Now, I guess going into this next section was something that um, came to mind, and I've been thinking about it for the past couple of years. Um, nowadays, um, you have violinists and cellists and other musicians, and it's not exactly the, I guess, the question about, um, you know, when you meet people have any of them ever said oh wow i thought so this one kind of does dovetail with the subject because nowadays um violinists and cellists and others are not necessarily the conception that today's violinists and cellists and other musicians are not your granddaddy's violinists and cellists and other musicians right no exactly you know back back in the day i think a lot of people their conception and even back then it wasn't wasn't entirely accurate but their conception is more like the musicians from the bugs bunny cartoons you know where he's conducting the orchestra and like, Le- Le- leopold yeah. you know that's the kind of a <laughs> thing that most people would think of uh-huh. but today yeah. you've got energetic physically fit sexy badasses like you and huh. tina gua and <laughs> okay. martin tillman and Lindsay sterling who dance and aerial violinists and that sort of thing now when do you think this shift and pop popular perception started to happen and uh oh and then the second part of that would be and what is an aerial violinist okay <laughs> um well when i guess you know in that uh okay, that was probably what in the 90s you know vanessa may and and all the i'm talking about violinists here more but you know it's i think it started mm-hmm. more with violin and then it went with cellos and other instruments um saxophone mm-hmm. obviously as well but vanessa may was one of those first violinist who was doing a lot of crossover between classic and rock pop electric and she became kind of an icon Mm -hmm. maybe what tina guo is now but on the violin at back then in the 90s kind of but more pop 
you know. So I think mm -hmm. that's when it started somewhere there in the 90s. Um, and then that evolved because that became a trend. And a lot of other violinists tried to imitate that in the same sort of way, taking um, a lot of Baroque classic composers and twisting them, adding beats, adding drums, and putting on, you know, those sexy Catwoman uh, suits, which honestly I can't stand watching anymore. But, you know, that became mm -hmm. kind of the trend for that whole, I would say, at least 10 years. Um, and I, I, think, mm -hmm. I think it was necessary to go through that, but then it got tired, you know, the style just kind of... I don't know, people just got bored because it just sounded all the same. Now came hip-hop, now came other styles. And with the internet being what it is um, and what it's been since the end of the 90s, basically, a lot of more merge merging of styles have happened and collaborations. So there's a lot more hip-hop uh, string players and um, well, jazz was already there, but you know everything has kind of grown out, and now you're gonna see a funk, jazz, electric, a little, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's it's so many combination. And then um, came the performance, uh, which I think was influenced a lot by Cirque du Soleil, because mm. that that was a big thing that also evolved for the past at least twenty years, um, and that influenced the show aspect of it because now we needed to be performers but also add the wow factor to it and they added a lot of things in their shows with you know putting performers up in the air and um just holding them up there not necessarily doing any acrobatics at first but just having a great gown or something while playing it, it's already a big wow factor um so um, I think that all evolved, and then certain people like like me uh, got the idea to combine those. I mean, for myself, it was a way to put two of my greatest passions in life together. You know, go back to that girl that wanted to be like Nadia Comaneci and, and say, "Look, I didn't forget you. Um, I'm going to do something with you." Now, I I think I need to figure out how to do it with music and. Having met people like um, Geneviève Dorian Coupal, who's worked uh, a lot with Cirque du Soleil, she's also worked as choreographer for uh, the Super Bowl and all these kind of shows. And you know, working with her gave me some ideas, and I I, I talked to her about my crazy flying violin idea, and she put me in contact and one with one of her friends. And uh, I remember I called. I called him, left a message, and he never called back. <laughs> I think he thought I was crazy, but I was persistent. I was persistent. Mm -hmm. So he ended up calling me, and then we started work, um, and I told him about my idea. I said, look, I, I wanted to be a gymnast. I love violin, but how can we combine the two? I want to do something up in the air. And so we spent a lot of time just figuring out what, what apparel could work, and ended up with the harness, uh, the flying harness, where I'm basically held by um, two wires on my sides and um, just trained. I mean, at the beginning, without the violin, and then when we started with the violin, um, figure out that we needed those wires to be wider because my bow needed to, some room to play, right? Ah, uh -huh. uh, right. <laughs> so we had to design some 
tall to, you know, separate them by about six feet. And um, as we evolved with that, I, I, you know, I trained, it was such a painful training. I mean, I loved it, but I remember not being able to laugh for about a month because wow. it was the core was so, <laughs> so sore from all those planks. I, you know, I needed to master being it, held up with those two wires um, at my hips and basically be able to do straight front and back mm -hmm. planks and hold them for minutes, you know, to be able to have the strength to do the number. So um, after six months of intense training, I actually got my first live performance on TV in front of a, almost a million people. So that was probably one of the most uh, stressful and exhilarating moments of my career as well. Mm. What performance was that? Uh, do you remember which event that was? It was actually a live show, that a French um, live variety show called L'Heure de Gloire, which means mm -hmm. basically moment of glory, where they take mm, actors or public, you know, known people that will be there to sing with the band, but they're not singers, but they really mm. put a show for them. And so lots of performance and light and stuff and so I was the highlight of one of those performances uh, by this actress who was singing Bring Me to Life by Evanescence and I love that song so I actually designed a violin solo in the bridge and she was singing the melody and um, I did a whole performance on that. I remember the, um, the guy who made the um, like the in-studio fireworks um, he didn't tell me about it, but he went back, didn't have dinner. He just loved this performance so much. He just went back to his uh, warehouse, got some stuff. And during the performance, while I was doing the final of the of the, the song, I was spinning. And I saw these fireworks start behind me. Oh. And it was like, oh, my God, it was such a great moment because you just totally surprised everybody. It was like. Thank you. This is great. <laughs> oh, so you did not know that was going to happen? No, it wasn't planned, and it wasn't even Whoa. the budget. Like, he totally wanted to do it for me, for the performance, and for uh -huh. for the show. So, obviously, he talked to the director, who was his friend, but um, he didn't tell me about it. That was kind of a surprise add-on that he wow. threw in there. Yeah, I found that was really, really cool of him. Now, you did a, a few things, uh, I, I guess, uh, around the same time. Uh, you and a DJ, uh, Ned and Joe, and yes. you and uh, uh, something called UNA. What was it? UNA or Una? U Una. I'm sorry. Una, okay, yes. but um, it seems. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead, please. Well, yeah, it's 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 kind of funny because it's a Una kind of means one, but mm -hmm. uh, we're two, so it's the combination of the two kind of blending into this uh -huh. mixed personality. I <clears throat> I'm kind of like the devilish brunette, and uh -huh. she was playing the. <laughs> get you know come out of the cake blonde <laughs> little princess and together we put a show together which was a high performance very virtuoso uh singing she's a soprano and mm -hmm. and violin but with funny choreographies and and kind of a 10 minute mm -hmm. stand-up comic musical comic show basically
and it seems like out of out of all those things that you were doing at the time, the aerial violinist aspect would see would seem to be almost your visual trademark. Do you, it, would it, do you think it would be accurate to say that? I I guess I mean I do like that because it is me in many ways. It's a combination of both my passions. Uh, although I don't perform aerial violin that much, uh, I mean it is kind of for special occasions or shows. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it for over 10 years now. Um, but, you know, some years I've done it maybe a dozen times. Now it's more like two, three times uh, a year. And, I, you know, I still do it, but it's it takes a lot to put together. And yeah. it takes the right event, the, the right gear, the, you know. So it is a complicated number to put together, but I love doing it. And, um, like, doing it for the... Mm. Uh, NHL um, All-Star Game, that was probably the most exhilarating performance I did for Aerial Violin. Um, it was in the first year that I performed after that show, and um, it's just the feeling of being rigged 100 feet in the air in the arena, because I do remember taking that elevator to 10th floor, <laughs> so <laughs> I do remember wow. that. And then starting from above the Jumbotron, Coming down, seeing myself very huge in the Jumbotron, that was not necessarily good, but... (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, this is me. All right. And those 25,000 people cheering uh, for the whole evening to come, basically. I mean, even if they're not cheering for me, but, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole vibe of the thing was so amazing. Um, And it was was stressful because there is danger. I mean, I'm... I'm a hundred feet over the ice. I, if something goes wrong, I'm I'm dead. I won't suffer, but mm-hmm. right, right. I'm dead. <laughs> it's not like there's a safety net uh, under yes. there. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, how did you become involved in uh, Lavoie? In oh, you mean Lavoie? <laughs> Lavoie. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? I don't want to sound like a fool, so I'm I'm going to do that over. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, so how did you become involved in Lavoie? Um, well, um, I've done a lot of TV shows in uh, in Montreal uh, for for at least twenty years. Um, involved in different house bands or invited um, with my quartet or you know as soloist. And when Lavoie, the voice, <laughs> started, um, they asked me to lead and contract the strings for the live shows, which was very exciting um, because it's such a great and fun show to be part of. They really put a lot of budget into it, and it's a, it's a great stage, a lot of great talent um, on stage that we discover. Some are friends that we actually you know, some friends that I had accompanied in concerts ended up being part of it and, and accompanying there until the finals was also very special. Um, so I've been doing it for six years and it's been great. You know, I've, I just feel like yeah, I'm part of the team, mm-hmm. the, the musical production team, and there's a lot of respect. The uh, David Laflèche, who's uh, the uh, band leader, he's just a great person in in the side in the in a sense that he really knows how to pick the people around him like he said himself I'm not the best guitar player I'm not the best you know musician but I know who to put together and he relies has trust in all all his players nice. and 
that creates an amazing synergy, I would say. So it's a great band to play with always. Uh, it is also really great because he knows me. And so what I like when I play there is I, I know I have some liberties and I can actually um, give input, sometimes even give suge suggestions to arrangements or um, play my own solos over tunes that, you know, they just give me a lead sheet. I, I know I can do it, but, you know, some others would be insecure and just feel like, well, this is live TV. We can't risk it. Uh, you know, I'll have somebody write you something. So it's a really great setting. A powerful one from Miss Bonnet, Prayer.
So dovetailing into our final section, um, uh, career present. And I guess we'll open with uh, a couple of questions that are a little more normal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you could pick, well, I guess sort of one question split into two. Okay. If you could pick one person whom you know personally or don't know personally, who is alive or not, whom you look up to as sort of a life inspiration or a life mentor, you know, uh, maybe one person professionally along those lines and one person personally along those lines. Oh, my gosh. All right. Um, hmm. I got to think a second for this. Okay. <laughs> this is like, Want to come back to uh, it? Yeah, maybe. I am just. I guess I just needed to sit because there's so many people okay. that are kind of crossing over in my in my head right now like not sure which one uh-huh. really but let's yeah let's go back to it okay no problem so uh what brought you and how did you uh come to the united states and into to la in particular um i've always had a strong connection with the united states um <clears throat> when i was a teenager i lived with my parents in new york from 11 to almost 15 um I studied there privately and I was part of the New York Youth Symphony and it just felt like people were behind me. People were encouraging, um, believing in me, believing in my talent and potential. And I made immense progress uh, during those years. Um, And then because of, you know, life and money, my parents basically were not legal to work in the States. So they were living in New York for almost four years, basically for me, which is just crazy amazing. Uh, Can't thank them enough, but it was a big sacrifice in many ways, and they had to come back. So when I came back, I started school, normal school, and um, it was hard for me because New York was so exhilarating, and I came back to Montreal where I had to start new, new teacher, new new school and everything. Um, And for some reason, even though I've had really great career work experience in Montreal. And I'm very, very grateful for those. There's a part of me that never really felt I belonged. Like uh, (laughs) almost like I was a little weird or like a black sheep that's not supposed to be there, but somehow ended up there. And so I I did make my career and my family, um, because I do have a son as well. Um, that's now 18. So, for all these reasons, I even though I had the idea of going back to New York or going back to study in the States, family kind of, you know, kept me there um, for beautiful reasons. But, you know, and then um, three years ago, basically, I divorced and my son was six, well, almost 16. And it just seemed like a perfect time for me to go back to the dreams that I didn't follow back then for multiple reasons. And because I already am a citizen, American citizen, there was no real doors, you know, like hurdles. Um, So I just felt like I needed a change in my life. And the connections that I had made were calling me back. I decided to do many trips a year and started collaborating, um, doing some internships here in L.A. um, with Michael Levine, who scored the first season of Siren, if anybody has watched it. Yeah. Um, and that was an amazing experience as well. He presented me to a lot of other um, composers and people from the industry. I I got um, in the Emmys as a, you know, I'm an Emmy member and a Grammy member. And that 
really extended my network. And it just felt like I belong, you know, this sense of I belong that I had been waiting for so long in Montreal. I was finally getting it here. So I just decided to plan this move to Los Angeles for the past two and a half years. And, um, and I just did it like two months ago. I just made the move. The beautiful thing about the whole thing is that it coincides with my son having gotten in the New York Film Academy uh, campus in Burbank, so actually in Los Angeles. Um, so he's here with me now starting his journey at the New York Film Academy as an actor, uh, following his dream, while I'm basically relocating here following my dream. So it's kind of mom and son adventure right now. Uh, Kind of in the unknown, but with a lot of positive attitude, I would say. Nice. So, um, excuse me. How, I'm sorry about that. That's okay. How specifically did you, or how did you specifically dovetail into film scoring? Um, I mean, we are called the movie sneak, and (laughs) you've been doing uh, just a lot of that lately, um, like with the LA uh, uh, live film. um, Mm hmm. The, the live score from festival. festival. Exactly. Um, well, it's funny because it all started because I did not want to waste time on tour. Okay. <laughs> that's all it, that's how it started. I mean, I did do a little bit of, of composition before, um, just out of inspiration. But about, well, exactly 10 years ago, I started this world tour with a pop singer, and I knew I was going to be away for four months uh, in in Europe and Russia and Siberia and Moldavia and there was so much traveling and train and plane and buses I figured I can't waste all this time I want to learn something and Mm. and Berkeley online popped up and um, I decided to take online classes while I was doing the tour and it was the best decision ever because um, well first of all it gave me something to do and I learned a lot and I fell in love with it and as I took classes uh, first they were arrangement classes and then uh, more into different styles and at one point I just decided to go into into film scoring which was a big dive because it, it was the first class was like we had to score one cube per week for 12 weeks and wow. had never done that so I didn't know how to use logic that much which is the you know the da the digital mm-hmm. audio workstation um, to program the music and I I didn't know how to use Sibelius which is kind of the score writing <laughs> uh, part of it so I had to learn all those as I was learning how to compose for a film and it was very very intense but I totally fell in love with it I I was not sleeping I, I felt like I wanted every cue to be as good as if I went to the movie theater and I watched that cue I wanted my music to be at that mm-hmm. standard. Obviously, I I did not succeed for sure at doing that because I didn't have the uh, the tools or the knowledge to do so. But I always strived to do that. And well, by the end of that, you know, that that thirty credit um, kind of master certificate, I did have a pretty good reel. Um, the good thing also is that it, I had to do it over five years because. As I went along, about a year and a half in, I started pitching for shows, and I actually won a few of them for a network television. Mm. So I started doing 
title songs for those shows and ended up doing two full seasons of um of a series which was incredibly uh well i don't know how to even describe it i mean somebody told me you have no idea what you're getting into and i did not but it was the the best experience in all ways because i i was the only one delivering the music and i was scoring back to back 22 minutes of music i was actually scoring six mini films Mm -hmm. which because the shows were literally six three to four minute uh short stories in different settings so it forced me to write in so many different styles some of which i felt totally comfortable doing and others (laughs) was like oh my god Mm -hmm. like shit you know is that word yeah <laughs> i did say that a few times like how, how am i gonna get out of this one um so anyway um i finished that that whole uh certificate and then we also did the 24-hour film race which is an amazing experience scoring in you know and making a movie mm-hmm. in 24 hours and we ended up winning the audience award in 2014 which was amazing um and best sound design as well and then you know i just starting doing more writing for different projects i'm still waiting for the first feature film i've never done a full-length film Mm -hmm. i've done short films and mainly television some tracks for commercials and and um live shows a live touring show that uh actually from 2012 to 2018 uh, this guy mesmer for which i actually did that that show on TV was also a performer, a hypnotist performing in hmm. France, a bestseller, selling millions of tickets. So, so that's great. I mean, I'm really happy I, I was part of that uh, show. But the next thing for me is to is to be more involved with uh, feature, documentary, video games as well. I really really enjoy video game music, and it, it speaks to me. And you know, we were talking about. Um, the music, what it means, the, the the flying qualities. It's for me. There's a lot in video game that is fantasy and that reaches a lot of aspects of my personality. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as the series uh, that you were doing, uh, the, the various back-to-back stories, are you um, able to mention which series that was? It's called the Mesmer Hip Gags, as in hypnosis gags. Okay. Basically, um, Mesmer, the hypnotist, would mm-hmm. put under hypnosis uh, his victims, which were really put under hypnosis. They were pre-tested to be receptive, as he says. Gotcha. He he's really really strong, and he can put basically anybody under under hypnosis. But some will take seconds; other might take a few hours. So, for shooting purposes, they pre-test them. Um, so anyway, so they have this setting where they, uh, after have they have chosen those pre-tested people, they bring them to the set and make them live different stories, which, you know, sometimes I was laughing so hard because you could see this guy think that he's Superman saving the planet, holding a comet in his hand, but it's just a huge kind of exercise ball. <laughs> and now he's there with his Superman suit walking in the park trying to save everybody and everybody's laughing you know but he's totally convinced that he's superman and it's so hilarious um and then obviously they were asking me to do something in the style of john williams with Mm -hmm. full orchestra but you know with obviously not the budget for full orchestra (laughs) those were kind of the challenges i could face and other times you know would be let's say this lady she's totally afraid of spiders and 
they hypnotize her into loving spiders. So she basically has this huge tarantula that she's caressing on her arms. And then they wake her up. Oh, that's cruel. <laughs> no, well, actually, they didn't wake her up with the tarantula and the arms. They did show her pictures of oh, her okay. with that, and she was like, "No way!" You know. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, you see the, the the kind of thing. So every every episode could be set in a bar, in a you know. Sometimes they would tell me, "Can you do a banjo theme?" Because we're doing this kind of western um, thing around um, ice cream, whatever, and then I have to figure out banjo mm-hmm. style, um, which you know, it's not something I've written that much in my life um i actually mm-hmm. maybe had uh an easier time with john williams than with the banjo you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um but it was it was great and it's also a great experience to collaborate with life players like sometimes i would hire a few players that would add on their their touch as a solo instrument maybe saxophone or accordion or you know well myself as violinist obviously but and that was fun well, it's funny, you mentioned uh, various different styles, some of which you were familiar with, some of which you were not familiar with, and you also mentioned the 24-hour uh, uh, film uh, uh, competition. Now, you did a film, uh, you did a score for a film there called Who Lives There? Mm. It is a beautiful place. <laughs> well, I, I love these colors. It's very original, yeah. No! Yeah, I'm pretty proud. I decorated it myself. I wanted to make it feel alive. Either they open the door, or they don't. Luckily for us in this ultimatum, they opened. Yeah, exactly. That's the one for the 24-hour... Right. And the music in that kind of has the feel of an almost um, rockabilly blues kind of thing going on there. It does. Where where did you come up with that? Uh, You know what? The most creative part of that, I would say, to be totally honest, was the one that came after where I did all the creepy sounds and stuff and all those sound designs that I played with and twisted with. The first part, I mean, I obviously could not book a band. I did not have that in my garage. And I only had like a couple of hours to figure this out. This is the kind of style they wanted. So I had never played with this before that much, but I just had to go through different loop libraries and figure out how to combine them and add my own lines to them. So, I mean, it wasn't just loops, but I needed to find rapidly, kind of put a band (laughs) together for the beginning and add my own instrument to it um, because I couldn't, you know, play myself the drum or bass or guitar for for that. But I right. think it ended up sounding pretty good, you know? <laughs> actually, it does. I mean, it's pretty I, cool. For a feature film, I think I would have taken the trouble to actually go and record a real band. But for a 24-hour film, you 24 know, hours. you can. That's not bad. <laughs> now, speaking of thrillers, you just recently um, worked on worked on a thriller. Could you give us a little insight into that? 
Well, that's a funny story, actually, because um, you're talking about Devil's Hour, obviously, right? Okay. Uh So I um, actually one of the I was one of the selected winning composers for this competition, which is related to the festival, uh, Los Angeles Live Score Film Festival, which they've been doing for five years. Basically, um, ten composers are selected through a process of two audition screening. And filmmakers are selected on their side for to get 10 films. And then we're kind of matched together. And I was matched with Brandon Garman, who's a director from the LA Film uh, School. And uh, so we were all impatiently waiting to see which film we would get. I didn't know if I was going to get a romantic comedy, uh, whatever, you know, uh, a thriller, um, whatever it could have been. So when I saw the title... <laughs> like oh shit I hate horror movies this is obviously an ho- a horror movie I, I don't watch horror movies I can't nah. so so I watched it and, um, and and then after the first screening of it I was I was thinking oh my god I'm going to have to to do music to this and okay you know and then I went to bed on, uh, you know, thinking, all right, well, we'll think about this the next day. When I woke up, I I went back and I looked at all the movies there was in the pool because they were all in the same folder. And there was a variety of styles. This was the only thriller. And after that, I was thinking, I am so lucky. Even if I I don't particularly like or love watching horror movies, this was the one that for me gave me the most potential to go and surpass my limits or even discover things or learn or you know and really go off the charts with this mm-hmm. this band because we were um, mm-hmm. we had to write for a specific instrumentation they were nine players that were to perform the piece that they performed it last uh, July and so it was very set we could not be bring pre-records or anything so I went for a few days, just researching on all the extended techniques. Uh, I knew the strings pretty well, but the winds and the percussion and the piano and just explored all the sounds that I could potentially get out of them. That was kind of like defining the sound palette that I had at my disposal, and it was so inspiring. After that, I watched the movie, and it just kind of flowed because it just felt like I had all these colors I could play with. And... Um, basically, I scored the thing in about three days. Um, the, the director, hmm. we had a screening, I mean, a, um, a spotting session by Skype. And um, we went through the movie wow. and what he felt, you know, what he wanted as, uh, as a feeling and maybe some musical ideas he had. And from then on, I just went halfway, sent it to him, and then said, wow, great, and just this little thing, and changed that, went to the end of it, and it was basically um, approved with very little modification. So it was it was a great experience. The, um, the funny coincidence is that I had just performed Drag Me to Hell for a project with um, Christopher Young hmm. in, in studio, at his studio in November, and when I st- spoke with the director, Brandon, we were talking about influences, what he liked and uh, which composers he admired. And he told me Christopher Young. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, all right. I really know what you mean then. I, I know where you're coming from. Uh-huh. And I was also at that time playing in the orchestra in Montreal for the live um, 
Harry Potter Prisoner of Azkaban uh, oh, nice. score. We did that live to picture. So there were a lot of really interesting effects that Williams used in the orchestra. And that gave me so many ideas I could pick from as well. So it was the perfect timing for me to score this movie. I, I feel life just threw it at me because it felt I was ready for it, you know. Exactly. Now, we did play earlier uh, Destiny Calling and Prayer. And could we just go into detail a little bit about those two? Sure. Uh, which one do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with Destiny. Okay. Well, um... That seems I, to be the theme of the evening, I guess. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's calling me here. Right. You know, um, Destiny Calling is, well, obviously related to what I've been going through in the past years. I felt this pull from from Los Angeles for years. Um, and I also, I mean, on another side, I wanted to do a piece that was more video game-ish, like, you know, game video game style. Um, so I, combining the two, it just felt like I want to make a story out of this. I want to bring you on a journey, basically. And so you feel that it is Destiny Calling with those voices, which, by the way, I did most of them. <laughs> so, wow. uh, yeah, I did the choir part of it, and my friend did the soprano, more solo line that you hear. Um, and the violin, I played my baritone electric, which is the very low bass note. It reaches down to the cello, so there's... There's like, you know, the extremes wow. of voices calling you with those low tones that are kind of deep rooted feelings that I feel sometimes I battle with and sometimes call me. It's kind of a, you know, push-pull feeling. Um, so this is kind of the intro that I felt for it. And then it just drives you, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like if you go in that roller coaster yeah. that's uh, magnetic, you know, it just, you feel that magnet, magnet, uh, just release you and it just pulls you in and that's I think that's part of letting go it's when you let life really pull you where you're supposed to just go right in that adventure and then and then yes it's an adventure so it there is a part of it that you need to be a hero I think and I wanted it to sound kind of heroic um, there is there is kind of a flying part about about that like an adventure and definitely traveling and and then it gets kind of a more roots, you know, with the percussion, I'm really happy about what uh, MB Gordy did because he brought all those really uh, earthy, percussive sounds and we picked those sounds together. Nice. He showed me so many instruments I had never seen before. So great. And obviously those taikos and um, different mm -hmm. drums from God knows where in Africa. Um, so that was really because there, for me, percussion, African per percussion really talks to my soul deep inside. And then there is the more spiritual kind of uh, voice and violin that is up there. Mm -hmm. So ground and sky are, are combined by those two elements for me. And this is very important in that song. I think those are kind of the pull and push that you feel throughout. And then you just the end is is just, you know destiny that you keep listening to but where is it going to call me next you know and prayer prayer was done uh in a sad moment in my life um in a moment where i was deeply deeply disappointed by human nature um 
deeply disappointed to maybe not have seen certain signs. And so I feel like this song is kind of um, kind of a prayer for better, but also um, forgiveness to mm-hmm. myself. I'm not sure if I'm a saint enough to say forgiveness for those people, but mm-hmm, as myself, mm-hmm. you know, I'm honest. Um, and I think that that's the most important thing to forgive uh, ourselves for whatever bad judgment we might have had that end up hurting us. And yeah. obviously, I could not end on a sad note because because I don't believe in sad endings. And like we were saying before, uh, before in the interview, there's always a way and. I will find the light somewhere. That's my determination always. So, granted, I know you don't have a crystal ball or tea leaves or anything (laughs) like that. (laughs) But um, what do you, what are you reaching for in your future? What is it that you want to... um... I want to tell stories with music. So um, whatever medium that is, um, it could be film. I'd love to do feature film, obviously, but I would also love to do a series. Whatever tells stories is the most important for me. And video game can be a great way to do so as well. So uh, those are my main composition goals. Yeah, it's amazing how some of the most um, intriguing and, and, and fascinating and colorful uh, music these days is coming out of video games. It's it's just amazing. It's what's happened in the past 10 or 20 years. Exactly. And they actually have a lot of times more budget, so they can have larger orchestrations. They have more time, a lot of time to have more um, time to compose, so they can actually be on a score for a year wow. because it takes so long to program a game that, you, you know, composers kind of work on it and then leave it and go to some other project and come back to it, which can be just, you know, difficult sometimes because you're not always in in the project, but you're certainly not rushed like TV. Um, and they have a lot of, of budget, so they can, I mean, for the bigger games, and so a lot of times you get full orchestras and then they go live on tour and they get an audience, you know, they get a following. So it is a very nice media. I actually also like the technical geeky side of it. You know, I learned how to program the mm. music into game, I thought I was going to be daunting at first, but really enjoyed it because you're finding ways of integrating it so that it's seamless and and so that you know it it will sound a certain way and react a certain way depending on what the player does or doesn't do. And it's really interesting all the things that you can actually program with the music now without like those loops. Then, um, so yes, those are my main composition goal as a performance. I love the having that kind of conversation with the audience and um and i just think that to me it's very important to have the balance between composing and performing i hope to have more collaborations as a violinist with composers like i did with christopher young that that's very gratifying it's so interesting and um and to do you know live performance of film or video game as uh, as a soloist as a solo violinist that to me would be really really uh amazing that's really the type of work i would love to do as a violinist there's also you know my concerto that's coming um premiering in montreal in november and there's a 
actually a friend of mine who composed composed it. His name is Quinson Natchev. Um, he is from Canada and now lives in New York. We've been collaborating a lot. We met in Banff a long, long time ago and worked on many projects, commissioned him a concerto. Six years ago, we did the, um, the demo of it in New York two years ago and finally got the funds through Canada Console, which I'm still wow. so grateful to, um, to do the premiere and the recording of the concerto in November. So that I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, based on something you posted the other day, can you uh, tell everybody a little bit about the music package collection, uh, epic and heroic uh, soundtracks? Well, these are actually um, CDs collections that have been put together um, showcasing some of the composers that are composing for a music package, which is a catalog based in Paris, France, and I'm very honored to be a part of that group since um, about nine months, I would say. And um, I also have a really nice project that I'm almost halfway composing right now as a solo artist, a solo composer and performer for my own album, which I hope will come out somewhere in the next year. Uh, so that's also very exciting with them. So, yeah. Excellent. Okay, and um, I guess coming back to a question that we asked earlier, and uh, you said you need a little time to stew on that. <laughs> Can you think of someone, someone that you know personally or not personally, someone who may be alive or dead, whom you would say you've looked up to as something of a life mentor, uh, one professionally and one personally? Well, professionally, I would say Penka Kuneva. She's an amazing ah. woman com composer. I yes. love her dearly. I've, I've known her, actually, for a few years. She's been kind of a mentor even if from a distance uh, always encouraging my every step um, but I just I admire her so much um, being born in Bulgaria coming to LA just you know out of faith devotion just sheer belief in herself that she was gonna make it against all odds maybe but and she did you know she she worked hard she um, started ghostwriting orchestrating and ended up composing um, scores like for Prince of Persia, mm. Transformers, and recently for NASA's mm. exhibit. And um, she's also such a generous person, organizing these seminars at her home um, to try to help out new upcoming uh, emerging composers to maybe not have all the hurdles that she went through or, you know, give some really good advice on a lot of aspects from artistic to business. So I really adore her. She's a great soul. Wonderful. Wow. Well, since uh, I, I, I did not know that, uh, well, then you obviously know Daniel then, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, he was actually the, um, yeah, he was the, the moderator. Yeah, the, fans of, the moderator, the fans of Tony music, uh -huh. yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast show. <laughs> and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that. Okay. <laughs> okay. And, uh, well, I, I'm not sure if that counts as both answers, I guess, professionally and personally, or... I guess I could add a little note just because um, I was thinking about this. I'm thinking, you know, my parents, just because I admire them and they've showed me basically that what I'm doing right now is possible. Um, and I feel very grateful for for that, for their open-mindedness. 
for believing in me wherever I would turn left or right in my life. I did have a few turns, but they actually had many turns and they, they followed their hearts. They uh, sometimes sold everything they had, even if they were at the peak of their careers because something else would, was calling them. And, you know, it didn't make them a millionaire, but it did give them this amazing, full, rich life um, full of experiences and adventures. And I'm very, very proud of them. That's fantastic. Well, I guess wrapping things up and kind of coming full circle, I remember I'd said at the beginning that I hope by the time we get to the end, if there were, you know, that there might be some young people out there who would say, wow, I think I would love to do that in the future. Now, I guess, um, I guess one more question. And, uh, I guess a little more serious, a little odd at the same time. And I guess the analogy would be, um, Anyone who's ever grown up as a part of any minority group, whether you're black or Latin or I've talked to many women who the same thing, um, I guess beyond the birds and the bees, um, very often parents will sit down and have what has come to be known as the talk with their kids. And the talk is basically about you're about to go out into the real world now and the real world is not necessarily a fair place. And he's, these are some of the things you need to know. And it could be anywhere from, I mean, when I grew up, um, me and other African-American kids were taught, this is how you have to deal with the police so as to not get in trouble. <laughs> um, a lot of young girls get to talk. This is how you deal with people at work or at school so as to uh, not fall into a situation where you can be sexually assaulted. You know. Now, since I've always thought of artists as a minority group as well, <laughs> you know, their own kind of minority group, you know. <laughs> yes, in many ways. What would be, for you, um, your version of the talk <laughs> to young people as far as, you know, maybe a word of encouragement and a word of warning? Well, I'm going to basically say what I told my son, uh, which is, you always have to follow your dreams because the worst thing you can have in life are regrets. Um, that said, I also told them to, to be successful and, and have a career in arts, music, theater, whatever. You have to, basically, you don't have a choice. If you feel that you have a choice in life to do this or that, to do this or be an accountant or be, you know, whatever else. If you don't feel that that is essential enough to your life that you don't survive without it, then don't do it. You know, that's my, yeah. I don't see myself being, living any other life. Um, doesn't time. mean that I can't do anything else. I was accepted in med school. I thought, yes, I can do something else, but I don't want to because I need it profoundly to be happy. And even if this career is brutally hard at times, it is also the most gratifying uh, at others because it is the most fulfilling thing I can do for myself is is surpassing my limits, uh, feeling that I've touched even just one soul in an audience, seeing that somebody shed a tear because of that amazing gray solo or whatever. To me, I live for those moments and I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Exactly. You can't not do it. Yeah. No, that's it. Can you dig it? So, for the folks listening, where can they find you online? 
Uh, there's a few places. Um, my website, my official website, is under my company's name. So it's triple W, Kinemuse. So K I N as in Natalie, E Muse as in Amuse. dot com. Um, and they can also find me very easily on social media.、Uh, Twitter is、um, N for Natalie Bonet. As my my last name,、uh, Instagram is Natalie Bonan Music. Never forget the H though; it's T H A. And also on SoundCloud, just by my name, you'll find me easily. Okay, and all of those links will be、uh, posted on the Movie Sneak Art 19 page,、uh, just to make it easy and more convenient for those listening. Great, that's awesome. Very cool. So,、uh, thank you once again. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Cool. I'm gonna go have that red wine now. You know. Go right ahead. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Talk soon. All right. Bye. That was awesome. And as it would be counterproductive to attempt to add anything after what our guest said tonight, I'm just going to end it right here. Do check out those links though on the Movie Sneak Art 19 page, and definitely give a look see to Natalie's YouTube channel so that you can not only hear but see some of those stunning performances. Till next time, I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online. And thanks for joining me at the movie sneak. See you again soon, up there in those cheap seats. Reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only.